We're thankful to have you with us this morning. We are uh, continuing our study of the gospel according to Matthew. Ultimately, it's according to God. We do believe that scripture, all scripture is God breathed, breathed out. That means what we have in front of us is a book that is sent by God, first of all, to make us wise into salvation, and then second of all, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, that's anthropos, the person of God, may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So really, when we open the book, this really is a height of worship. We often think about worship as singing and praise and prayer, and it is. But the height of worship is when either privately by yourself or corporately together, we open God's word and we examine our hearts and lives in light of scripture and saying, is, this, does, is my life in alignment with, in agreement with the one who brought this universe into existence, the one who is our creator, the one who is the redeemer? We have just completed last Lord's Day the parables. It's uh, in chapter 13. Basically, Matthew, I think, has given us a hint of how he has organized his uh, gospel. He'll have a narrative section, and this is carrying the story forward. It starts with the genealogy. He'll go to the virgin birth. He'll give the circumstances of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And then we have what's called discourse or teaching. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, not from its content, but from its location. And then you'll have this transitional statement, and when Jesus had finished these words, then we have more works, more narrative that pulls the story forward. And then we came to chapter 10, and we have another discourse or major teaching section that Jesus gave to his original uh, 12 disciples when he was going to send them out. And then when we come to the end of that section, we'll find a similar statement. And when Jesus had finished these uh, words, then we find, uh, and the confrontation with the religious leaders of the day is picking up. It's getting hotter. They don't like him. We've already seen then that they have beginning to plot, how can we put this man to death? And then we came to the th chapter 13, the parables, some there by on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore. Some were given to the whole crowd. And then afterwards, they went back to a house in Capernaum and his disciples came to him and said, would you explain some of these things to us? And he did. And basically those parables are about 
four different types of hearts and our reaction and response to the word of God. Some are stony hearts. We hear the word, we heard the message of the kingdom and Satan comes along and snatches it away and and we're just indifferent to it. Secondly, some will have some type of superficial response, but there's no lasting fruit. Third, another superficial response and no lasting fruit. And Jesus said, but this is the one, this is the one who has a good heart, who hears the word and decamai, you take it in, you receive it. Remember what your heart is? It's not simply the way you think. It includes that, but it's also your will, your emotions. And that really is an evidence of what we think of the word of God, the way, and Jesus said, a person who truly receives the word, who is part of my kingdom, they welcome it, they take it in, and they bear good fruit. Now, not all to the same extent. Some 30, some 60, some 100. But Jesus said, everyone who truly believes will have evidence of that in their lives. Then we have this transition here in, again, at the end of teaching, Notice in Matthew 13, 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, I think that's Matthew's key connector to tell us, okay, now we're moving back into narrative. We're following the storyline, real history from the cradle. We're going to go down to the grave. Then we're going to go to that wonderful resurrection. And then Dr. Luke will also in his connection with Luke Acts in volume two, he's going to tell us he's coming back. He's coming back in the same way that he went again. And so he came to his hometown and he taught them in their synagogue. So now we're going to have another major, probably the most lengthy section of narrative in the gospel of Matthew. And notice how Matthew begins it. Again, The opposition is increasing. Not only do the religious leaders have said to Jesus, they can't deny his miracles. They they watch them take place. He cast out demons. But they said, you do it by the power of Beelzebul. You do it by satanic power. And even the people in general at this point are now saying, John came and John also has a demon. So we're coming to Matthew is helping us to understand and follow through as we're going down to the cross that there is a rising time in opposition, and it will increase right down to when they nail him upon a cross. And notice what he puts up front as to help us understand this next narrative section. It's going to be the rejection of Nazareth in a synagogue by the people that know him, immediately followed by the rejection of John 
the Baptist, which has already taken place as death, and Matthew is going to narrate it here. So that's where we are headed and how this fits together. But before I go any further, I want to pause and ask God, the true teacher, If you have a stony heart, may God be merciful to you and break up that stony ground. If you have a superficial heart and you have never truly believed in him, it's all about what God can do for you. You've never truly trusted him. May God be merciful to you even this morning and bring conviction upon you. Nobody gets saved without being lost. Nobody gets saved without a genuine conviction of sin and a need of the Savior. Lord, we look to you this morning. We stand in need. We gladly, thankfully acknowledge our need. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save anyone else. We're so thankful for the message of salvation the Word of God, we're also so thankful for the Word, the living Word that Christ came and provided a redemption for all those who look to Him. So may you teach us, may the Spirit of God be the true teacher. May these words fall upon our hearts and have an impact upon us by the way we receive the Word, by the way we live, by the way we take the word of God seriously. We pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to transition this morning in our thinking from Capernaum to uh, Nazareth. I put the red dot there at the top of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is going to return to uh, his boyhood home, not where he was born, but where he grew up, where folks would have watched uh, him growing up in Nazareth. And this is, uh, I mean, you could drive there today in about uh, an hour, but it's going to take you uh, much longer then without the highways. We're, you're looking at, uh, at at least 2,100 feet, you're, you're coming back up, remember the Dead Sea, how low it is in geography. So it took them some time, and we don't know exactly how long it took them to come back, and uh, we're going to find them there at, uh, with his disciples at Nazareth. Some of you have been to Nazareth. Here's an aerial view uh, from the Northeast. Today, it's a uh, very a city of about 60,000 
people, maybe less now because it's up there towards the north and Hezbollah has been shooting rockets down uh, into there. We, we probably don't really I'd have an appreciation for what the people of Israel, the land of Israel, go through in terms of living in constant danger. Um, I've, I've told you before, I took a course, a couple of courses in modern Hebrew, and with all the software that's available today, uh, the instructor would just sit in her living room, and she's a little bit younger than I, I am, but not much, and uh, you're learning modern Hebrew, and I think the, a great way to learn a language is learn to speak it because it sticks. The grammar's a little bit different from uh, biblical Hebrew, and uh, we're coming down to the end of, of that year, and uh, moves at a pretty fast fa- pace. Um, there was one student left, <laughs> me, and... Um, I was loving it, man. I got, you know, you one-on-one being tutored and all of a sudden I could hear the sirens in the background and she goes, gotta go, gotta go. And, uh, I saw her daughter run across the living room. Uh, I waited about 10 minutes or so and, uh, pretty soon she came back and she said, uh, um, it was rockets. And she's in Tel Aviv, and she said it was rockets. We had to run uh, to the bomb shelter. Uh, I said, yes, I, I understand what you're going through, not by experience. Um, she was not a believer, very kind uh, woman. Up, up, up in Nazareth today, approximately 60,000 people, Arabs, and Jews uh, live together. I remember the first trip we went, I had no desire to go uh, on another uh, one up to the modern city of uh, Nazareth. It's called the Church of the Annunciation. Now, I remember almost always when there's some biblical site or event that takes place, guess what gets built over it? A church. So you really can't see uh, anything there. And it's the church of the Annunciation. What Annunciation? Well, that's when Gabriel announced uh, to uh, Mary that she would have uh, a son. It's one of the largest buildings, uh, church buildings in the Middle East. You can go in, and some of you who have been there, this is actually, um, I don't the Nazarene church, the Nazareth Church of the Annunciation. When we were there, it was jam-packed because they're, they're just waiting from one group to the next group to the next group to uh, hold a service. And uh, they, it, it's debated where exactly the ancient tell of Nazareth is. Some believe that uh, um, it goes back to the 300s and who first came through. And then one church was built on top of that. It was destroyed. Another church was built on. And then you have this current Franciscan church there. So you're not going to go down and do archaeological digs underneath uh, the church that's been already built and constructed there. We had an excellent uh, guide, Amatziel Cohen, his last name, 
Kohen is the word for a priest. He was very kind, uh, grandfather. Um, we're standing up on uh, the mount, the temple mount. And I remember conversing with Ami and talking about, you, you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He had great respect for uh, the New Testament, was very conversant with it. He said, well, I'll tell you, George, he says, if you're right and he comes back, then I'll know. Sorrow gripped my heart. He said, no, it'll be too late then. It'll, it'll be too late. But anyway, he... Um, when he took us up to Nazareth on the second and third trip, as I remember, he said, no, we're not, we're not going into town. You're not going to see anything there. All, all the, you know, he said, I really think the tell is as we drove. And he said, see, see over there where they're doing that archeology span on that and that dig over there. He said, I think that's the accurate, uh, place of, uh, Nazareth. And, some of you remember we went up on Mount Precipice or Her Hakvitsa in, in Hebrew. It's located south of Nazareth, that high point. And uh, from, Mount, from up there, you could see Mount Tabor when you're looking south over the Jezreel Valley. Um, actually, we're standing on the, sitting on the edge of a cliff. That's our... Uh, guide there, uh, Ami Kohen, excellent, superb guide. But if you go to, there's no guardrail there. So my wife, she's a little more adventurous than I am. She would go look over the edge and I'm like, don't go boo. Just <laughs> kind of, um, and, but it gives you, and the wind was blowing hard that day. Tom's trying to hold on to his hat. And uh, I went out there and stood. Where's Trevor? I tried to find your picture. You sent a picture. Here's Trevor. He's standing out there on one leg with his leg up like that. And I thought, Trevor, there's going to come a day. Enjoy it while you can because someday you're going to come. You might have neuropathy in your legs. You can't stand up there like that. But so this is, this is towards the conclusion of it. We'll work through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I'll uh, refer to while some think that the Lucan passage is not the same event as Matthew and Mark. I do, um, but there's room enough there for uh, disagreement. So, but when we come to Nazareth as the hometown of Jesus, this is like backwater Hicksville. Um, remember it said, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, estimates, now there has been some archaeology done on the side of the church there, and, and, uh, but the estimates are maybe, maybe 200 people at the time of Jesus that lived in Nazareth. Just retrace the steps to me. Here's Mary, Mary up in Nazareth. This is her hometown. And Gabriel, to, to a young gal in Nazareth? No, no, 
God, you must have it wrong. You need to come down to Jerusalem. This is where all the action is. Isn't Zion the holy city? You need to come. Nope, nope. Up to Nazareth. And the announcement to Mary. And then Mary and Joseph with the census of Quirinius. They had to go down to Bethlehem because that was Joseph's lineage, his family line. He had to go back there to uh, be enrolled. And it was there that Mary, okay, now is the time for birth. You don't, you don't say, no, uh, we can hold on here when the time comes to give birth. And they were down at Bethlehem, and we read about there. And Jesus was born. And then remember Herod the Great? This is Herod the Great Builder. And he ascertained from the wise men who came from the east. Where's this? Where's this? He doesn't want any rivals. He knew enough about scripture, but was so concerned that somebody might take his place or somebody would create some type of uprising among the Jewish people. Here's Meshach, here's, here's the Messiah, and we don't want Rome getting concerned and him losing his position. So they came. Remember the angelic annunciation to the shepherds? There's right outside, shepherd's field, right outside of Bethlehem. And the shepherds came, and they worshiped. The wise men came, and they worshiped. And then an angel, we see... All written over these first four chapters of God's divine providence over his son. Here he goes. I got tricked. I'm going to murder every son that is born to make sure I get, I get this person. I read the text, but it's just almost incomprehensible to me to think about the grief and the sorrow of those mothers that had their baby sons to another butchered by Herod the Great. But you can be sure every one of us has an accounting before God one day, and Herod had his day of accounting, and he died and so an angel came and said, okay, it's okay to come back uh, to the land of Israel. And they came back, but Archelaus, his son, was ruling, and they were kind of concerned. No, we don't want to go down to Bethlehem. And so they decided to go back to Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. Luke gives us more information. Luke tells us that Jesus came back, remember, after they they took him up for the circumcision as uh, according to the Mosaic law, and he came back to his hometown. He submitted to his parents. He learned the trade of his father. He was a tectone. Usually um, at at that time, it would have been certainly working with wood. That's why it's usually translated a carpenter, but also... Um, you look how that word is used. It, it basically is a builder. He probably worked with stone and metal uh, as well. And then at about the age of 30, then we find Jesus appearing to John the Baptist down at the Jordan River 
and coming to John for his baptism, which was basically the anointing, the Spirit of God came upon him, followed by the temptation account, and then he's off into the Galilean ministry. Now, one of the difficulties that I find, as many find when they're studying the New Testament, you're looking at uh, the Synoptic Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the arrangement that they have of the events differs. Sometimes it may be topical and sometimes chronological sequence. They're all heading down to the cross and to the major part that they will deal with is that last week of Jesus's life, the, the suffering. But sometimes it's really hard to know when you look at differences, which one is the right order. So I'm going to take this morning Matthew and Mark in agreement. They're probably the right chronological order. And what Luke has done, he's shifted his account of Nazareth um, way up right after the temptation account. How well do you know your neighbors? Can you name any of them? If you, if I, I know one of the profs said at Moody when I was still in Chicago, he got these huge high rises out along the lake. They're fairly expensive to live there. They have guards down at the beginning. You have to have access to go in there, and so. Uh, he and his wife, you, you can't get in there for evangelism. You can't talk to those people. You're not even allowed in the building. And so what they did was they sold their home and they bought one of the units in there so they could have contact with the people and uh, at least talk to them. Uh, I know some of our neighbors, when I was uh, growing up, um, uh, my high school friends, we all lived in uh, at least what is called then was a trailer park. Um, these were mobile home units. There were probably, I don't know, 35 of them. And we were about uh, 10 miles from the high school. So we had to get out there at 630 in the morning to catch the bus. We all knew uh, one another. We played sports together. Um, and I went to church. I didn't have an option at that time. I'm thankful. My mother, Carrie, spoke. She didn't just speak softly. She spoke loudly, and she carried a big stick. And if you live in my house, you're going to church. And so we did. And some of our friends didn't do that, and they made fun of us. I remember one in particular he said, you can't believe that Bible. Do you know how old people, it says how old people lived there in the book of Genesis? I said, yeah, I do. He said, nobody lives like that. You can't believe that book. Um, my brother had contact with him. 
He wouldn't even allow any believer to come to his funeral. He was so atheistic and hard-hearted towards the gospel. I know other of those uh, guys that I hung around with and ran around with growing up. One, uh, this had been about 20 years ago, he was just sitting at his dining room table talking to his mother, and uh, the heart attack was so, the, the shock it, it knocked him off the chair again and against the... A, But what did I know about them growing up? What did I know about the guys when I went in the military and we hung out together? And, hey, we're, you want to be close to somebody, be a combat medic, and you'll be close to these guys, and they're going to they're gonna take care of you. They're going to treat you well. And you know a lot about one another. But you know one thing I never talked to those guys about? I never talked about God. Of course, I was in a a believer uh, anyway. But small towns, small towns, you generally know one another better. I know our neighbors to some degree. Um, one Easter, we made up flyers. We went around and invited everybody. Uh, you know, it's one way in and one way out to our neighborhood. We made up flyers and we invited everybody to our house for a uh, uh, Easter service. Do you know what Easter is about? Come. And one of our other neighbors who is a believer, he held one at Christmas. Invited. So we have block parties as well. I know some who are believers, but I don't know them really well. Many of you know that I was born in Chicago. I grew up in a single-parent home. I spent many summers, sometimes the whole year, at my grandmother's farm of about 300 acres in the Appalachians in western Maryland. My grandfather was deceased. My Uncle Jack ran the farm. The nearest town was Accident, Maryland. Supposedly two surveyors met by accident. And uh, so my mother sent me back to my uncle. She goes, this boy's lazy. This boy's lazy. You teach him how to work. I didn't always appreciate it then, but I do appreciate now how hard uh, my uncle worked, and and uh, he had a big boot, and if I didn't work hard, he would let me know what his boot felt like. So I'm I'm thankful for him. We'd go into town, and it seemed everybody knew Uncle Jack. Um, wherever we stopped, whatever we talked, it seemed. Now think about that of a small Jewish town of about 200 people where probably everyone knows everyone. They have a common ethnic bond, Jewish, religious. They have a synagogue, not only for Shabbat, the Sabbath, but the synagogue would also uh, serve as a community center for other gatherings. Now, keep your finger in Matthew, but I want you to turn over to an event in Luke Chapter 2, this is that record where they're there at Pesach, at Passover, Jesus is 12 years old, 
And uh, he would not have been required by age, but his parents took him there. And it's quite obvious that they're instructing him in the faith of the Old Testament scriptures. So I'm in chapter 2, verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning to the boy, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. You go, were those, were those bad parents? How could, they, how could they leave and not know that their son was with them? Keep reading. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple. So the three days would be a day out and a day back. And then, and then finding him. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, I, I suspect... Here's how that would take place. So they come down from Nazareth. Notice it is supposing him to be in the group, relatives, acquaintances. So they would come down from Nazareth. This is a small town, maybe 200 people. And they're coming down all the way down to Jerusalem for Pesach, for Passover. And as the custom, you, you read, they would sing some of the Hillel Psalms on the way, and they're also going as a group for protection while they're coming down. So I submit to you, these people knew one another. And I suspect that when they got back, they go, yeah, we remember what Jesus did. <laughs> His parents had to go look for him. That, that boy, that 12-year-old boy should have known better than that or something like that. And um, can you imagine the workmanship? Um, who, who made uh, the table? Maybe Joseph. Oh, no, no, Jesus made this one. You think it was shoddy workmanship? I mean, if you could prove today that he even made a spoon by Jesus, who knows how the price of that thing would, would be worth with all the relic worshipers. But the, the, the point is, is this. These people knew one another, and why I'm hammering this is because this is going to be so important when we come to the text in Matthew and Mark this morning. They knew him. They knew his family. They knew him by name. They hung out together. They did different things. They, they uh, uh, maybe um, Uncle Hezekiah, Look, look, look at how well this is made. Just look at this workmanship over here. So, um, but notice in verse 51 of Luke 2 before I leave there, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, submissive. This is the verb hupotasso. Now, Anybody here been a perfect child, always submissive to your parents? Raise your hand. No, no hands. How many of you were rebellious? I got both my hands up in the air. Yes, we all weren't perfectly, except 
maybe Jared, because I understand Jared. He was a good guy growing up. But he was also dead in his trespasses and his sins, as he gladly confesses. So uh, he he was submissive to them. Can you imagine his other brothers? I'm just conjecturing here. Why can't you be like Jesus? His sisters, pay attention. I got it right this time. I want you to know Jesus did not have any older brothers, as I said. You go, you said that one time? Yeah, my wife had to correct me. And sometimes I say things. That's why you need to have your Bible open in front of you and just come on the way and go, Preacher, would you take another look at that text when you go home? Um, so he, he had younger brothers, and we don't know how many sisters, four of them are named here, and uh, he would have been the model son. And wow, we'll look at a bit at what kind of a student he was of Scripture. They, they didn't have... They didn't have a book like this. They didn't have it in codex form. And it was in scroll form, in huge scrolls, as I'll show you a picture in a bit. And so when you went into the synagogue, you had to unroll the scroll. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's, let's go to the events leading to the rejection. We'll start, go back to Matthew, and then we'll flip over to Luke. coming to his hometown, clearly Nazareth. And now we find him in the synagogue on Shabbat, a Sabbath day. You look at the mark in parallel, and his disciples are with them. And, and what did he do? He taught them. He taught them. He taught them. Now, this is just a summary, but what did he teach them? When you look at what, what was Jesus always teaching them about? The kingdom of heaven. And how do you get in? You repent, you repent of your sin, and you believe in the one whom God has sent. And they were astonished. Now, flip over to Luke chapter 4, because Luke gives us most of the details about uh, this particular event in Luke chapter 4, verse 20. Now, when we come to Luke's account, as I mentioned, some don't see the events he records here as the same event in Matthew and Mark, but a different event, perhaps occurring a year before Matthew's uh, event. And, uh, And why would they do that? Well, just look at the sequence that's taking place. You have uh, the genealogy, you have the baptism first genealogy, you have the temptation account, and then you have the beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry in 4.14 through 15, and then he comes to Nazareth. So if you're following this in terms of chronology, it seems like uh, we're... How, how, how does this all fit together? Matthew and Mark have this event occurring much later. 
So I understand Luke's record here is not chronological, but it is topical. He shifted this record, the same event that we're going to read in Matthew and Mark, up to the beginning. Henry Alford, one of the Greek textual scholars from Cambridge in the 1800s, offers the main reasons for seeing the Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the same event. Uh, Luke 4.23, there's already been a ministry at Capernaum, and uh, uh, would, if, if this is a prior event and they tried to throw him off the cliff, then later on we read Matthew and Mark that then the hostility would certainly have toned down because they don't do that in Matthew and Mark. So um, I, I think we just have more details here, and Luke does this. He puts this up front because you want to know, think about this, as he says, as you follow through the gospel here. Here's what Jesus endured. Here's what he endured. Even his hometown rejected him. Now, I, I, I notice when, um, for example, when the Mavericks won uh, the NBA title, and I'm watching, uh, they're showing shots of Dirk's hometown back in Germany, and they are cheering. They're, they're going great. We have right up here off of Highway 75, my grandkids, when they were small, they said, why is that snowman up there? It's not a snowman. It's, it's uh, Eisenhower, you know, his statue uh, up there. So a great military leader or something like that. We, Hey, he was born right here. Uh, you go down to Fredericksburg, and what do you have down there? You have the Nimitz Museum. But let me ask you a question, this, this statement here. And it's a general proverb. Um, did Isaiah get celebrated in his hometown? Got sawn in two. How about Ezekiel? How about John the Baptist? So I think the statement that Jesus is going to make there is, is a general proverbial one regarding uh, prophets. So let me pick up in Luke. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, we have from both the Mishnah and other sources of what a typical uh, synagogue service would be like. They would often have uh, begin with the singing of some of the Psalms, perhaps the Hillel Psalms. They would almost always include with uh, what's called the, the 18 benedictions. And it would be a reading from both the law and the prophets. Now, it's not clear to me. Um, and and they, would, they, they would have an attendant. I remember the scrolls would be rolled up. They would be in uh, a container. And so you bring out the scrolls. This is a key part of any, every synagogue's uh, service is, is the scriptures. Remember, the scriptures for them was what we call the Old Testament. And they would, they would bring it out and someone would read for, from it. And if you were a, a man in good standing, then you were able to make some remarks regarding that 
passage. So we read here, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, this this is almost mind-boggling to me. Let me show you why. So here's the great Isaiah scroll in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. I think they have a facsimile. Remember when we went to uh, that, uh, the, it's called the Shrine of the Book, but it's, it's like a domed uh, building and um, has all kinds of uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, other manuscripts in there. So you see, you have to, you know, you're going from one side to the other. This was stunning to me. Um, I don't remember if Dylan or Trevor gave this to me at uh, one of the uh, STS's uh, conference that someone donated a Torah scroll. So um, there it is. They have it laid out on the floor for others to, to look at it. And at least this one has a little break. Uh, this, this would be a later one. But you just have consonants. You don't have your vowels underneath there. And... The original ones uh, that they would like from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the great Isaiah, there, there's no breaks between words. So how do you know where, where to stop and where to begin? You have to know, be accustomed to reading uh, that. Um, so here's Jesus. Notice what it says. He unrolled the scroll. He has to read this stuff, and he has to know how to scroll through. It doesn't have chapter and verse. He doesn't go, oh, let's see. No, I'm getting close to chapter one. There are no chapter divisions. There's no verse divisions. That came probably in the 12th century uh, A.D. And so he knows, and, and how, without having a copy for himself, how did he know this? Well, you got to memorize it. You got to go to synagogue service. You got to listen to the scripture read. You got to meditate upon it. I mean, any scholar who thinks he knows the Bible well, this should be a jolt to us. We don't, we don't know it very well at all compared to that. And he found, he found the passage. I'm running out of time, but flip over to Isaiah chapter 61. I just want to see. So he's scrolling down through there, and he comes up to Isaiah chapter 61. We're beyond that great chapter in Isaiah 53, and uh, we're talking about the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord here is not Israel, but we find it in chapter 6. So he finds the place, and here's what he reads from. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I don't have time to go 
show why he's talking about the great year of Jubilee. But notice he'll stop. He'll stop. Guess what he doesn't read? And the day of vengeance of our God. So now flip back over to Luke and he found the place where it was written, and he, and he reads these things. There are three infinitives that tell out the, the, the purpose there, and this is why liberals like the gospel of Luke so much, because they'll have a social gospel. You know what the social gospel is? It's all social and no gospel. So, yes, Jesus was concerned about the poor, he was concerned about the blind, but all these things have a greater ramification. He proclaims, he proclaims it's a message. It's a message that he is giving to them. So he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down. Now, when they would teach generally, they would sit down. We don't have all the instruction that he gave to them. But notice what it says in verse 20. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. They were glued on him. And he began to say to them, today, right then, that day in the first century, this scripture has been fulfilled. It's a tense meaning right then, and it's ongoing up even to today that this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if I took time to develop that whole thing, it's talking about Isaiah 61, the anointed one, the Messiah, and they got it. At least they understood most of them should have. I don't know about the children, but they should understand. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so they begin a little evaluation of this. Seriously, let's think about this. We know a little Jesus. <laughs> Do you remember that event when we went down there for Pesach and Passover and, and he didn't even come back with his parents and they had to go back and, and find him. Do you remember what his, his brothers and his sisters were saying about him? Maybe they called him goody, goody two-shoes. I don't know. And they go, yeah, we, 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 we know him. Yeah, he was, he was a pretty normal kid. I don't know if any. And by the way, this boo-hoo's all those, um, you know, later apocryphal accounts that, um, when Jesus was, you know, one inquiring minds want to know what did Jesus do when he was three, four, six, seven, eight? You know, he's down there making some clay sparrow. Somebody steps on a clay sparrow and he goes, zap, take that. And, it, and, and, he, and he, that, that's all apocryphal stuff. But isn't this Joseph's son? See, flip back over to Matthew. Isn't his mother called Mary? 
Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? I wonder, I wonder if some of them were there when it says, and aren't all his sisters here? There's a here in the text. Were they in that synagogue service with them? But certainly there in Nazareth. And the text emphasizes two questions back in 54. It's, a, it's an interrogative in Greek, pathen. From where? From where did this man get this stuff? Then it's emphasized again after their evaluation. From where, from where did this man get all these things? We know him. He grew up here. Who does he think he is? And as a matter of fact, the Lucan account says this. If you did miracles down in Capernaum, then do them right here in Nazareth. And you know what? He doesn't do miracles on demand to satisfy somebody's attention. Well, we're going to hold the Lord's table, so I'm going to have to uh, come down on a conclusion to this. And what, what is Jesus' response? The assertion of the proverbial statement, a prophet is without honor except in any his hometown. He refuses to bow to sinful demands. And then in the Lucan account, they take him out. Because remember what he did there? Um, two Gentiles, the widow up, and uh, Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian, and he gives them an example. That really enraged them, and so they were going to throw him off the cliff. And he just walked right through the midst of them. It wasn't his time. So let me, let me just at least bring a couple of applications here. What do you know about Jesus? I read scholars who read this account, and they scoff at it. They just scoff at it. You know why they scoff at it? Some do. Because they have a world view that excludes the miraculous. And you know what? And if you take this account seriously and what Jesus said seriously, you know what? Then you have to deal with your sin. Because he's the judge. That's what we saw in the parables. You're going to have to stand before him one day. And you're not going to be able to say, well, if I would have been there in the first century and Jesus would have appeared to me and I would have saw his miracles and I would have believed in him. Read the record. It didn't take place like that. And you could say, well, I got this reason and that reason and this reason. And basically, um, I'll give intellectual assent to it, but I don't want my lifestyle messed up. I want to be King George. I was King George for 22 years. Thank you, Lord God in heaven above, that you kicked me off my throne. And I bowed the knee to the Savior and said, save me, save me. That's the account here, right here, rejected at Nazareth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're putting it up front. Don't make that mistake. How are you going to know God? Jesus came, Matthew. John 1.18, he came to exegete him, to make him known. You read through these accounts. They're not fables. They're not stories. They're real historical accounts. There really was a person. He grew up in Nazareth. Read about him. 
He claims to be the only Savior. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Have you come, have you come to him? Have you bowed the knee? Have you said, save me? All who come to me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. For those of us who have come to the Savior, we're going to partake of the Lord's table and we're going to remind ourselves of this most critical death of deaths in history for guilty sinners. If you've never come to trust Jesus Christ, transfer your trust off of yourself onto the Savior, then we ask that you would not partake this morning, but you would uh, observe and learn uh, from it. If we do not practice closed communion. If you're a believer and you're here from another church or another fellowship, you're not under church discipline, we welcome you to partake with us this morning. And when we partake together, it's a way of saying, reminding ourselves of who Christ is and what he's done, examining my life and my living a life that brings glory to him. And I say a big thank you across my heart.